I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And part of that dignity is that all religions are welcome in America. Christianity is but one of the many religions safely practiced in America where there is and always has been a strict wall of separation between church and state. Religion, most of us would agree, is unrelated to being a patriot. There are lots of ways to keep democracy alive in our republic and be patriotic. Then there is something else called nationalism, something foreign to our American traditions. Nationalism is defined by the very wise economist John Maynard Keynes this way, nations are real things of whom you love and feel for the rest indifference or hatred. Our guest today, Catherine Stewart's new book, focuses on a religious nationalist movement that is on a collision course with the American constitutional system. Uh, And this corrosive movement has advocates in the highest of high places. Today on Keeping Democracy Alive, our focus is on the extreme dangers of mixing religion and nationalism. Certitude, which often guides the most fervently religious, is a problem. In the freewheeling, always competitive politics of a republic, there is an intentional lack of certitude. That is seen by religious nationalists as the enemy to be conquered. Religious nationalism intends to crush democracy, replacing it with actual dictatorship. In Donald Trump, the religious nationalists see their king chosen by God. He, to them, is greater than any demands for democracy. Though religious nationalists praise the Constitution, their ideas are fundamentally incompatible with our Constitution and a republican form of government. They insist that the state becomes subservient to power in the service of God as they see it. Their goals are the antithesis of our founder's goal of self-government. Now, I grew up in the 50s and 60s when the John Birch Society was seen as radical right, but in her 2013 book, Wrapped in the Flag, author Claire Connor describes with some horror how the goals of her parents, who were high-up leaders in the Birch Society, although those once considered extreme values, had taken over the Republican Party. But wait, it gets worse. The radical right was one thing, but the religious nationalists of today are far more dangerous to to America than the earlier, not very powerful, out there right wing. The religious nationalists of the 21st century have succeeded in electing a president who is adherency as a conduit for the voice of God. He's seen as a king sent by God to rule us all. And like other dictators, there are the moneyed moneyed power seekers behind the curtain. Plutocracy is part and parcel of religious nationalism. The ground troops in service to those powers are in a crusade to wipe out our freedoms and our democracy. No exaggeration. Hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of Americans, deeply believe in this new political form, and it is uniquely dangerous. It didn't rise arbitrarily, but has been consciously created and manipulated. A new way of striving for an old, all-too-familiar goal, centralized, concentrated power. 
And this extreme nationalism and direction of religiosity on the part of the believers is possibly the most serious threat to America since World War II. In my opinion, the personification of this truly un-American religious fund- uh, nationalism happens to be in the White House. And one of their own is Attorney General Bill Barr, who insists America is going to hell and the laws made by humans must be subservient to the laws of a particular religious belief. They are extremely well organized and their power is growing. Can our democratic republic survive? Well, a new book is called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Catherine Stewart is the author, and she is our guest. Thank you so much for being with us, Catherine. It's so great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Catherine Stewart reveals what she found in her travels across the United States. Catherine Stewart is one of the leading authorities on the political aspects of the religious right. She's the author of The Good News Club. She contributes to The New York Times, American Prospect, Washington Post, The Nation, The Guardian, The Advocate, Slate, and The Atlantic. And in her spare time, I don't know, in 2014, she was named Person of the Year by the National Civil Liberties Group, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, of which I've been a member for a long time. The title of your book, The Power Worshippers, it sort of has a, a double meaning. Please tell us about that title. The main theme of my book is that what pretends to be a religious movement is, in fact, a political movement. And so I think the title captures that theme. Another theme of the book is that religious nationalism um, and nationalist religion is inherently anti-democratic, and it tends toward authoritarianism. And I think the title captures some of that, too. The people in this movement really adore uh, people in power, uh, at least when they feel like they're their people. So I emphasize the theme of power in the title. Uh, the adoration of power. Yes, we can see that. That's very interesting. I've been trying to figure that out. And, and you've done the research and, and uh, seen it clearly. Now, for years, since Pat Buchanan introduced the concept of a culture war back at the 1992 Republican Convention, I've understood it to be so, a culture war. But what you're talking about is different. It's less about culture and more a political war intended to actually replace our foundational principles and institutions with structures uh, uh, of one particular version of Christianity. What is that, and how does it differ from a mere culture war? Well, I want to point out that it's not just one variety. It's not a single variety of religion. The movement includes a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant forms of religion, um, and uh, uh, they are all very conservative interpretations of the Christian religion. But the main thing about the, that unites the movement is not as much of theological distinctions, but a kind of um, almost like a the the political unity is is where there the, is a, a their unifying vision is more political than religious itself. Um, but the main point is that you know the culture war is still there. Yes. But it's a mistake, I think, to believe that the culture war is driving the politics. The culture war is just a grassroots expression of social discontent, because the defining feature of the current political landscape is that the culture war is being used by a political movement. So. Um, you know, if you think about issues like same-sex marriage or abortion, leaders of the movement know that if you can get people to vote on a single issue or a couple of issues, you can, can capture their vote. Uh, so these issues have been cultivated and exploited over time for securing a certain kind of political power. I think the best illustration of this is in the politics of abortion. Mm-hmm. We've bought this narrative that 
Christian nationalism arose as a kind of unified reaction to the horror of one Supreme Court decision in 1973. But that just isn't true. The reality is that abortion was consciously selected and cultivated as a political issue. And this happened quite a few years before that Supreme Court decision. Uh, interesting. And uh, uh, you write about something that happened uh, a few years after that, in 1979, with Paul Weyrich, uh, concern uh, that protecting uh, segregated schools was not enough of a motivator to unlock power for the right wing. So they attached the abortion thing to sort of uh, be a cover for uh, uh, protecting segregated schools. Is that, is that somewhat right? Indeed. I mean, I think any student of power knows that the first step in controlling the present is controlling the past. And the the one thing that Christian nationalists have been incredibly successful in controlling is a narrative of the past. They've sold us this idea that their movement was a grassroots reaction to abortion. So I want to just sort of very quickly review how abortion became, came to be selected consciously as an issue that would unify a movement. So Paul Weidrick and a bunch of other members of a movement that was called uh, the New Right, that's how they called themselves, they you know, were really upset with the, you know, the tax status of racially segregated schools was being threatened. They were sort of outraged by the idea that Bob Jones's schools, you know, Bob Jones mm-hmm. was this ardent segregationist um, that the IRS was kind of examining and questioning whether his schools should be tax-exempt. So they, they sort of sat down with the list of issues and went down, uh, sort of examining them as potential issues that could unite a movement, um, protecting the tax uh, benefits of, of racially segregated schools they knew wasn't an mo- um, issue that was going to really unite the movement because it's just, frankly, quite ugly. So they sort of looked at a number of other issues. They looked at, um, of course, unfair unfair tax treatment of racist academies. The women's rights movement was another. They looked at the ERA, but at the time it was already sort of going down in flames. There were several other issues on the list, and they basically crossed, crossed off one after the other. And they realized they wouldn't work to unite their movement and to find their enemy. So finally they settled on the issue of abortion and said, wow, that could work. That uh, scene was actually very uh, carefully documented by Randall Balmer, he's a historian who uh, has, uh, was very close to that movement and has written about it extensively. And you talk about they. They decided they got together. Who is this they? Well, the leaders of the New Right included um, Paul Weirich, um, Howard Phillips, who worked oh, as yes. uh, uh with uh, Ronald Reagan uh, and a number of other leaders who were uh, sort of kind of uh, worried about the direction the culture was taking. They were upset with the liberalization Uh of culture, the rising women's rights movement, desegregation, and other issues that were, you know, where people were seeking to claim equal rights. A lot of them were motivated by uh, sort of antipathy to communism. So it it included a number, and then folks like Jerry Falwell were involved. The movement uh, realized they needed to sort of get people of faith on board, and they cultivated um, uh, ministers like Falwell who uh, were already very active on the airwaves and had these very popular radio programs. Mm-hmm. So the movement coalesced and sort of decided to you know, really make a big change. And that movement uh, called the New Right has played a substantial role in the sort of foundation 
creating some of the foundations for what we're seeing today with a larger Christian nationalist movement. I am more often than I would like reminded of a quote from abolitionist Wendell Phillips after the uh, war against Southern secession, against Southern independence. He said, uh, maybe the South would never rise up again, would never take up arms against the Union, but it would rule from within. This is right after the Civil War. And it seems kind of like those values, segregation, uh, the proper role for women, uh, you know, white, white uh, Christian dominance of everything. It's, it's amazing to me how, you know, there are wars that never get resolved. Virtually, I don't know, so many wars don't get resolved. You talk about what's going on in Russia, too. I find that fascinating. Uh, you know, of course, communism destroyed religion, saw religion as something that had to be overcome. And they tried to replace religion with uh, communism, which wasn't really Marxist communism at all. But in any event, the Orthodox Church and and the perhaps more permanent power of Putin, there's Hungary's Viktor Orban, North Korea's Kim, uh, Philippines Duterte in the Philippines, Bolsonaro of Brazil. What unites all these things? Well, I think with all due respect to the different circumstances in these different countries, one thing that religious nationalisms have in common around the world, apart from their hostility to democracy, is an alliance with conservative religion. Now, I don't mean any specific denominations of religion. I mean a certain variety of religion. You know, most religions, uh, Christianity included, of course, are extremely diverse. Most Christians in America, I believe, see Christianity as having to do with loving their neighbors and helping the poor and undefended. But um, the variety of religion that religious uh, authoritarian leaders prefer is a more author- uh, more conservative uh, uh, sort of authority-based form of religion. So when leaders like Putin in Russia or Orban in Hungary or Erdogan in Turkey bind themselves closely to religious conservatives in their country to consolidate an authoritarian form of power, we understand this is a form of religious nationalism. And that's what we're seeing today with Trump's alliances with our own religious ultra-conservatives. Uh, true, for sure. And uh, I'm curious about uh, your research. How did you, this is, it's, it's quite a read, and it's, it's very, very uh, insightful, and you picked up a lot of things. That must have been fascinating uh, to do your research and to be in these places. Tell us about that, please. Well, I mean, for me, this is fascinating. For over a decade, I interviewed Christian nationalist leaders and foot soldiers around the country. I attended dozens of their gatherings and strategy meetings and conferences, and I really listened. I think listening is underrated. I listened to the leaders, not just when they were speaking to the general public, but also when they were speaking to one another and then the forms that they share or when they were speaking to sympathetic audiences. And gosh, there's so much to say about that. I also dug into the work of the leading strategists of the movement, the data strategists, and the hyper-conservative theologians that provide the movement's philosophical underpinnings. And I interviewed experts on the field on all sides, and I followed the money trail, something every good investigative journalist should do. So my book is a combination of investigative reporting and political and historical analysis. And again, the book is called The Power Worshippers, Inside 
The Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. We're talking to its author, Catherine Stewart, on Keeping Democracy Alive. And it's an interesting cover. It has a flagpole with the American flag. Just above that is a cross. I think that's a perfect cover for for what we're uh, talking about here. And you talk about cover. They talk a lot, these religious nationalists talk about religious freedom. It seems like that they see religious freedom differently than I do. What do they mean by religious freedom? Do people who don't share their religion have freedom too? I think this is a big point. It's a it's a huge topic, and I think we should point out that the calls for religious freedom that characterize so much of the movement's activism today um, have have there's two big components now. Number one, they're bound up in a sincerely held belief that people uh, who hold the correct versions of the correct religions, uh-huh. mainly conservative Christians, should be permitted to discriminate against LGBT people and others. Um, in things like foster care services or housing or, you know, they always say it's about, you know, they cast it as being about um, wedding cakes and flowers and right. things like that. But it's also have, have, it also impl- implicates public services and access to public services. But I think those calls are really as loud and passionate as they are because they're grounded in the fear among movement leaders that their discriminatory inclinations might cost them their lucrative tax tax Uh deductions and subsidies. And they also have a desire to substantially increase the flow of public funds in their direction. So let's look at the second part of this. Religious organizations already obtain public money through subsidies, tax deductions, grants, vouchers, and other means, but they want to increase that flow of funds. This is really obvious in the field of public education where Religiously motivated voucher advocates argue that the public funding of religious schools is a religious liberty issue. So if failing to fund religious schools with your tax dollars is a violation of their religious liberty, then the taxpayer has no choice but to fund religion, which is an unconstitutional establishment of religion. But, you know, it goes even farther. Eight federal agencies have proposed changes to the rules governing how they work with religious organizations under the specious guise of religious liberty. They're proposing to allow religious organizations to receive federal funds without complying with non-discrimination laws. So, you know, in fact, in some instances when the taxpayer funding is delivered through vouchers, as in the case of public schools or indirect aid, the organizations may proselytize or require participation in religious services. So then what we might see is that a, a soup kitchen, for instance, you know, who receives uh-huh. indirect aid or voucher money will be allowed to say, yeah, you can come to our soup kitchen, but you have to sit down for church services first. And that is, in my view, an unconstitutional establishment of religion, public funding of direct public funding of religious organizations. So I wonder about other religions, like <clears throat> Muslim, for example, how they feel about that. I mean, they all have, in my opinion, and I think this is traditionally conservative, all religions are free from government interference, and they have that right to be religion. Do they not see that as part and parcel of religious freedom? You know, there will be some other religious organizations like a, a, a Jewish housing aid group or a Muslim soup kitchen um, oh, that will 
you know, claim to derive benefit from these new rules, but they will serve as strategic cover for a movement that really seeks to impose a particular version of religion and elevate um, the rights of uh, particular religious groups in our society. I mean, we've seen so many times that when um, the Christian right claims that, you know, oh, we're just exercising our religious freedom when we put, for example, our free speech rights, when we put a Ten Commandments on a, a, you know, in front of a courthouse, when other religious groups that are, say, unpopular religious groups, we look at groups like the, the Satanic Temple, try to do the same thing, you know, everybody screams and shouts and the whole thing is shut down. So it's really not, you know, they claim neutrality when what they really claim is privilege. Privilege and domination, I think. And you reminded me, talking about public education, uh, many years ago I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, and a rather right-wing colleague of mine shocked the heck out of me when he stood up on the Senate floor and, and called public education government schools. I had never heard that before. That That is uh, uh, fascinating. The public education uh, is a government school. And their attack on science is part of this, is it not? Talk about those issues, please. Yeah, the long-standing hostility to public education characterizes the movement from its roots in folks like uh, pro, uh, ab- uh, pro-slavery pro theologians like Robert Louis Dabney, who railed against public schools, believing them to be atheistic and also objected to uh, white people funding education for black children. The theme was carried through to folks like... Um, uh, Rusas John Rushduni, a mid-century theologian who not only quoted uh, the pro-slavery theologians like Dabney and Thornwell, but also reprinted many of Dabney's works through his own publishing house. I'm looking right now in my office at a book called The Messianic Character of American Education, written by Rusas John Rushduni. And there's so many like choice quotes in there. He says public schools basically train women to be men. Um, again, you know, promote yeah. atheistic unbelief. Those ideas were in turn promoted by some of the 20th century, uh, later 20th century theologians, like the founder of uh, a ministry that was um, a, a particular favorite of the family of Betsy DeVos. And he, oh, wow. in turn, promoted the idea that public schools were promoted atheism, and he said something to the effect of this had been done by a foreign enemy. It would have been considered an act of war. So there's a great irony that Betsy DeVos, who has been active in trying to uh, promote uh, public funding of religious schools through right. voucher initiatives right. and also... Um, promoting a sort of wider school choice agenda that basically deflates public education, is now in charge of the education department and Trump's administration. So I think the hostility about toward public education is really rooted in the idea among members of this movement that anything that fails to affirm their religious viewpoint is somehow hostile to it. And uh, I think a lot of the sort of school choice initiatives today, while, you know, everybody loves the idea of choice and there are many well-meaning voucher advocates, mm. it, it is really about a kind of overall hostility to the idea of public education and, and uh, critical thinking. Ah, uh, yes, the critical thinking. It's, it's a dangerous thing, and they know it. And we talked, I, I mentioned Bill Barr right at the outset, and the idea of 
I mean, it's, it seems to me, not being a Christian, but that one of the basic Christian values is helping people who are down on their luck. Who, But Bill Barr and people like that think somehow that's not a good thing to do, that that's bad to do. And it sounds like that is uh, goes along with this uh, uh, religious nationalist stuff. Talk about that a little bit, please, about why it's not good to help poor people, to, to, you know, to have welfare programs and Medicaid and things like that? Well, there's, gosh, so much about uh, to unpack here. I mean, let's start with Bill Barr. Yes. I think when we talk about him, this is an excellent illustration of how denominations don't really matter as much in the modern Christian nationalist framework as we discussed earlier. He's a Catholic, but he's as important and significant to this movement as evangelicals. Um, a second thing about Barr is that he can't be identified as a representative Catholic. In fact, he stands for an extraordinary and extreme form of Catholicism. So it brings up the point that we discussed earlier again, that people in the movement are extreme and not representative of their religion. And a third point, uh, and, and as we mentioned before, I think most uh, uh, American Christians think that the religion has something to do with helping the poor and undefended, right. and uh, whereas the movement uh, doesn't see it uh, that way, they don't interpret it quite that way. They they think it's fine for the churches to help the poor, but not for the government. And we'll get into that after we discuss Bill Barr. And I think the third point about Barr is that he gives us a really good example of what's driving the movement, and that is a profound hostility and paranoia to secularism. I mean, he definitively blames non-believers for every problem in his society. In the society, we can see this in his speeches to, uh, like, Notre Dame Law School and uh, some of his other speeches. He blames uh, secularists, as he calls uh, people who uh, are believers of separation of church and state or perhaps not religious themselves, but uh, believe in morality. He thinks they're out there ransacking everything that is holy and good. And he suggests they're profoundly malevolent beings. And this is a, a central part of the movement today. And I think that, you know, the Christian nationalist movement um, has, you know, to get to the second point about defunding the social safety net, um, our, our poorly developed collective infrastructure today is a consequence of decades of right-wing economic policy, and the Christian nationalist movement has allied itself with that policy um, completely with a libertarian, pro-corporate, economic, conservative wing of the Republican Party. So I think it shares some of the blame for the fact that we have this poorly developed collective infrastructure and healthcare. This cohort uh, believes in the privatization of healthcare system and the undermining of government everywhere constantly demonizing government, seeking to tear down the social safety net, even going so far, I thought, looked up, look it up last night, Ken Blackwell, who's a member of the Family Research Council, oh. one of the leading policy groups of the um, movement, called uh, government-funded aid programs like food and housing assistance unbiblical. Um, he said he compared them to the, the plantation of big government. <laughs> And this is actually a kind of theme that we see in uh, some of the thinkers of the religious right today, so many of them. The plantation of big government, so that they're, oh my goodness. (laughs) 
I know. I, what do you say? Okay, so I want to <laughs> just tell you another one. Uh, can I give you another example? Oh, please do. It's fascinating. Because <laughs> it just it goes on and on. This is the thing that astonished me the most about the movement when I started researching it. Because at first I thought, oh, they're really concerned about abortion, and they're really concerned about you know the decline of traditional marriage, and the you know the fact that there's so much divorce and children, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then I started going to their meetings and reading their writings and the expansiveness of their positions on domestic, economic, and foreign policy issues really hit home the fact that the Christian nationalism is a political movement, not merely a stanchion in mm-hmm. the culture war. So let's look at a leader like Ralph Drollinger. He's the head of Capital Ministries. It's a group targeting political leaders and the highest echelons of power in the nation's capital. Right. So uh, right. at least 10 out of 15 members of Trump's cabinet have, have attended. He says the idea that, you know, he promotes this idea that social welfare programs have no basis in Scripture. In his Bible study guide, which he's actually teaching to our political leaders, he writes, the responsibility to meet the needs of the poor lie with the husband and marriage first, secondly with a family, uh, and thirdly with a church. And then he writes, nowhere does God command the institutions of government to, or commerce to fully support those with genuine needs. He also makes clear that God believes in deregulation and uh, you know economic deregulation, um, uh, environmental deregulation. He writes... No, leaders must incentivize individuals and industries, which includes unencumbering them from the necessary, unnecessary burdens of government regulations. I mean, he also has words, by the way, for laborers. Um, he's uh, the the movement obviously opposes things like you know Unions. minimum wage laws and and things like that that will oh, offer sure. more job security to, to to the workers. So, in another Bible study. He quotes from the New Testament, the first letter of Peter, which which goes, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respects, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Yes. So here, we look, he's comparing this with slavery. Yes, here he explains, The economy of Rome at the time of Peter's writing was one of slave and master. The principle, however, of submitting to one's boss carries over to today. And it seems like that's it just covers so much ground. There's the man is in charge. You can't have exactly. <laughs> I mean this this is all music to the ears of business leaders, many of whom rely on minimal workers' rights and yes. uh, minimal economic and environmental regulation to maintain and increase their profits. Well, which brings us up to the issue, as you said, any investigative reporter has to find uh, where's the money? Where's the money? Who are the funders behind this movement? And, and you can see what's in it for them, that's for sure. Less wages, uh, fewer environmental restrictions. So who, who are some of the funders behind this movement? Well, the movement derives much of its funding from a cadre of hyper-wealthy individuals, who, um, uh, many of whom belong to extended families. I'm thinking about the DeVos Prince family, mm. the Green family, so many others that I describe in my book who are as committed, if not more, to a sort of libertarian economics as they are to right-wing positions in the so-called culture wars. The movement also, much of its daily activity uh, is... Uh, 
involves seeking funding from the rank and file. So like every day or two, I get mailings, email blasts from the Family Research Council, um, Americans United for Life and other organizations of the right that are seeking fund, you know, fundraising appeals. Sure. And I think they're quite, quite effective at that. I still get fundraising appeals from the Trump organization. Little do they know. <laughs> How did that happen? Did you sign up for something? I have no idea. But I have been a Bernie Sanders supporter all the way. I was at, anyway. That's another issue there. But I think oh, it's it's pretty scary. And you know, this movement is very much tied in with the Trump machine. No question about it. With Betsy DeVos, you know, you talk about uh, the fox guarding the hen house. You know, trying to do away really with public education and have the Department of the Environment do away with environmental uh, regulations. Uh, it, it's absolutely amazing. And one of the questions I have, I've noticed that people on the religious right are really big into Israel. Now, it's not because they love Jews, I don't think. There's something else going on there. Well, Sheldon Adelson is a big money guy. What, what about the, uh, the role of right-wing uh, hyper-backers for Israel? I think Zionism is important to this, Christian Zionism, I should say, is oh, important yes. to this movement. Uh -huh. But at the same time, it's hardly the same thing as Israeli Zionism. I mean, it's hardly identical with what, whatever it is that people in Israel, which is a country as diverse in their politics as we are, yes. may have in mind. Um, Adelson is one funder, but the largest uh, number of funders, for sure, are... Um, coming from the sort of evangelical and, cons you know, conservative yeah. evangelical and conservative Catholic spectrum. I do want to say that a lot of people describe the religious right as an evangelical movement or the Christian nationalist movement as an evangelical movement. It's not quite true. Yeah. I mean, four out of five evangelicals voted for Trump, but one out of five did not. And there's a, a very strong, um, growing progressive evangelical movement that opposes the con uh, politics of conquest and division that this movement represents. And I, I know that uh, there was, uh, oh, I can't even remember the name of the book now, uh, but came out, oh, 15, 20 years ago, about uh, people, religious people, recognizing that Earth, you know, we are stewards of the Earth. We're supposed to take care of God's creation. And uh, th th I, I hope that that's growing. And Christian nationalists, as you describe, are, are a min minority, I believe, but they are particularly powerful. And, you know, it's, it's easy to simplify and say it's, uh, you know, they, they support segregation, but it's not, a, it's not white against black. Many, not all Christian nationalists are white. How, tell us about that, please. That's absolutely true. I mean, people characterize the Christian nationalist movement as a white movement. I think for a lot of the rank and file, the movement is an implicitly white movement rather than an explicitly white movement. Um, they because they tie it to the idea that um, of particular uh, cultural identities and religious identities. They imagine a time, a mythical time in America's past when America was all once Christian and all once right. you know white and that's never been like that country's been diverse from the start yes. so it's an, a form of identity pro uh, politics and that ties the idea of america to a specific set of approved religious and cultural identities but leaders of the movement 
can see the demographic future as clearly as you or I can. And in recent years, they've made a significant effort to reach out to Latino and black pastors. So there's an irony there that these pastors who are being drawn into the movement are being enlisted to fight the culture wars that drive support for a political party that has made voter suppression and race-based gerrymandering a strategic imperative. I also think that movement leaders uh, tend to paper over the ways in which conservative uh, evangelicalism and racism can reinforce one another. They certainly can. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive and Boy, it's a big issue. The uh, uh, Christian nationalists, we're talking with uh, author Catherine Stewart, whose new book is The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And it's uh, it's pretty powerful. It's uh, it's everywhere. I mean, the, the Trump administration. And as part of your book, you, you wrote that in 2016, uh, Evangelical intellectual Wayne Grudem, I'm not sure if I pronounced it right, wrote an essay titled, Why Voting for Donald Trump is a Morally Good Choice. And, of course, there's some questionable moral things that uh, Donald Trump does, like every day. Uh, but he, it's centered on what Trump could deliver as president. Judges, abortion restrictions, further rights for Christian schools and business owners. Donald Trump, as we all know, did win and does appear to to seek to present himself as some sort of a king. I mean, he's fascinated with gold and power. And to people like Franklin Graham, the son of uh, Billy Graham, impeachment was a king akin to an unjust inquisition. How does that fit in with this? An inquisition, unjust inquisition, that impeachment trial. Well, it's really interesting. I mean, think what if you're looking at... Um, Wayne Gruder's piece and the fact that he's saying, you know, Trump is going to deliver on judges and economic policies that are favorable to our pocketbooks. I think that that's absolutely true for some of the Trump voters. It was a transactional thing. He's going to give us what we want. But let's not overlook something else that is really important, I think. The support for Trump was not entirely transactional. Um, and it goes into what you mentioned about uh, Graham. It's while it's true that they got the part of the deal they were looking for, you can't explain the tenacity of the movement and their hyper-loyalty of their support on purely transactional terms. There's something about Trump's style of politics that speaks to this group, and that is tribal politics and authoritarian politics. Um, religious nationalism almost always favors a fierce leader. It doesn't want someone who follows the rules. It wants someone who breaks the rules and twists arms as long as the arms belong to the dreaded enemy. And they've made this really explicit by comparing Trump to biblical figures like King David and King Cyrus. He's thus cast as a kind of imperfect vessel whom God has chosen to enact his will and restore America to its so-called Judeo-Christian roots. Franklin Graham has actually said something to the effect of, you know, God showed his hand in this election. Yes. Trump is uh, God's candidate. So many other Christian nationalist leaders say much of the same thing. David Barton called him God's guy and God candidate, God's candidate. And um, uh, Paula White, who is now a member of the Faith and Outreach, she's a Faith and Outreach director in the Trump administration, she said it is God who raises up a king. So it's this kind of culty worship of Trump and actually identifying him as uh, somehow divinely appointed. Absolutely amazing. And that that's, you know, as regular listeners know, I love history because it's so different from the, you know, official whitewashed history 
I mean, it's just, it's incredible. And, and, and the fake history, that's why, I mean, Mussolini referred to fake news, whatever he didn't like, uh, but is real. And I hadn't, it, it's amazed me how often people who are in the lower income brackets are fiercely uh, devoted to uh, President Trump, and I went. My one, my younger daughter's school is in South Central uh, Pennsylvania, and that is Trump country. And as you say, a fierce leader. It's nothing to do with policies. It's just that he's a fierce leader. That is fascinating. That answers my questions about a lot of things. How they can do that? What was the reaction amongst? Uh, probably not just one reaction uh, amongst the uh, uh, religious nationalist when the traditional conservative Christianity Today magazine uh, had an anti-Trump editorial. What was their reaction? I, I, I can hardly imagine. It's a, you know, it's a really good question. The answer is quite simple. They rejected it. And I think what that shows is that the rules still apply. Anyone who sticks out their head and speaks the truth, you know, and says the emperor has no clothes, is going to get smacked down. The movement succeeds because of its unity. You know, as we mentioned earlier, and you pointed out earlier, it is a minority of the population, but it it punches above its political weight because it is so organized and so unified. And, um, you know, they've trained people to vote on the issue, the rank and file to vote on the issue of judges. Again, if you can get people to vote on one or two issues, you can get their vote. And they've unified people around those issues in order to turn out the vote. I remember I was sitting in a Chula Vista, California megachurch listening to some movement leaders lecture a group of conservative-leading Latino pastors who are largely ministering to working-class congregations. And one of the leaders said, when you're talking about financial issues, when your you know, congregants bring up the issue of money, you've got to say to them, what's more important, talking about the minimum wage or about life? So if you can get people wow. to vote on those issues, uh-huh. you can get them to ignore a whole host of other issues. But the issue of unity, I think, is incredibly important today to those of us who oppose the politics of division and conquest, who believe in our Constitution, yes. and who want to restore the separation of church and state to our country. I think, you know, I was at a Road to Majority conference a couple of years ago, and one of the leaders sat up there and he said, this election is about judges, judges, judges. It's like right in advance of the midterms. I think we could get people on the left to understand that, you know, maybe they're not going to get whoever you're political, maybe you love this person or that person, maybe you're really hoping that this person um, would be president or, you know, think that they've got better details on health care policy or education policy, but we've got to look beyond the personalities of the individuals that we elect and look at who are they going to appoint to be judges. Is it going to be a bunch of Federalist Society uh, folks that are handpicked by Leonard Leo, or is it going to be people who, judges who are actually believe in the rights of of the individuals and the rights of um, working people and people who are going to, um, you know, affirm our constitutional principles and think about judges, think about who's going to be appointed to the cabinets. And maybe, you know, the the front runner may not have been your favorite person. Um, but, you know, um, think less about 
the distinctions among sort of like-minded people who, if you look at a Venn diagram, they may overlap an awful lot with the contrast with someone like, like Trump. Yes, it is very disturbing that, as you say, they, they punch above their weight. When I was in the state Senate, I was working on uh, uh, one of the it, it bills was on, on gun safety, you know, safe gun laws, protecting the mm-hmm. public. And there's no question that like 80% of the people supported, you know, common sense gun laws. But we on the left of the far right, anyway, are so diverse in looking at so many different issues we're at a unique disadvantage. Probably every one of the gun owners in New Hampshire uh, members came in and filled the uh, legislators' hall. And they they can focus like that. The left, we're not even really the left. I mean, you know, just left of the far right. But we are on so many different issues that, that uh, the other side has the... Uh, the power, because they're so focused on things. And this thing about... Ju- okay, go ahead. You're about to say something. Well, no, I think you're so right about that. And I think it's easier in a way to unite a smaller group around a radical core ah. than to unite a much larger group that is... Most of what they have in common is their opposition to that radical oh, group. Yes. But this is one of the reasons I wrote my book. I really want people to understand why the movement is as successful as it is today, how it has become successful, why are they able to win, and to take lessons from that, hopefully, to understand that, you know, he may not be your guy or she might not be your lead, your person, right. but, like, we need to unify when it's necessary, yes. and we need to, um, you know, take some... You know, the, the Christian nationalist movement has invested for decades in data, media, yes. and messaging. Yes. And I think that um, uh, the left has, um, we need to make, make it, it needs to be clear to all of us by now that investing in infrastructure is really important. And also to create a fo- positive voting culture. You know, I've been to so many of these gatherings of the religious right, and every single person, no matter how old they are, no matter how, whether they're disabled, if they're, you know, mom stuck home with her kids who needs babysitting, everybody will be, you know, is, is, the the message is that you are enlisted to fight this battle. Your vote uh-huh. matters. Your you know your point of view really matters. Um, your you know participation in our democracy really matters. And so they really make an effort to get out the vote. And I think if um, those of us who oppose those right. politics of conquest and division could everybody just step it up a notch, we could actually you know start winning elections and restoring our country. It has certainly been frustrating to see you know people young people especially go to rallies and then i don't know they don't vote that much and they, what you said about judges uh, you know uh, uh, the uh, senate majority leader Mitch McConnell is focused on judicial appointment appointments that is huge and people i don't know why they don't think about it it's not just the supreme court it's all the federal courts and that makes such a difference in terms of people's rights and how people can live in america but you know, people vote. Here was a, how can you vote on issues when you have a, a TV personality on the other side? It's like two entirely different games that you're playing at the same time. It's uh, really difficult. And one of the things about politics these days is despite uh, 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 Citizens United, 
there are still some legal limits on how much anyone can donate to a political campaign. You write that an aim of the movement, it would seem, is to turn houses of worship into cash machines. So how does that serve the moneyed interest behind uh, the uh, Christian nationalists? Yeah, they, they've really turned par- um, partisan uh, houses of worship into a, what are essentially partisan political cells by uniting conservative-leaning pastors into these networks like uh, Watchmen on the Wall, which is an initiative of the Family Research Council. It's been endorsed by Vice President Mike Pence and other Republican politicians. And what they essentially do is that they give, they sit pastors down in rooms or they reach them through, you know, uh, online uh, initiatives and networks, and they give them tools, very sophisticated messaging tools, uh-huh. data tools, um, media tools. So I went to this one gathering in uh, rural North Carolina in a church, a big church, and there were dozens of local uh, conservative pastors there. And the Tony Perkins, the head of the uh-huh. Family Research Council, was leading the event, and there were a number of other speakers, but he said, you know, Christians need to vote. I'm not going to, you know, suggest it. I'm going to tell you. You're, you need to tell your congregations that they need to vote, that they have to vote, and then they're told, you need to tell them to vote their biblical values. They give them these sophisticated tools to help them understand what those so-called biblical values right. are. So pastors were instructed to form what they call culture impact teams within their churches, and the idea is that pastors can figure out who's motivated to vote, who's politically activated, active, active, who's well-connected with other members of the congregation, and get them into these groups where they can sort of tell people how they need to vote and show them this is the biblical vote, way to vote on the environment, which is, you know, no regulations. Right. So the resources on the environment uh, led to uh, something called the Cornwall Alliance, which um, is uh, is an anti-environmentalist organization. <laughs> uh, they talk about you know how they it's all about abortion and you know same-sex marriage and all that kind of stuff. So um, so they don't just suggest it. They're like the culture impact team. They have a manual. It's like two hundred pages of tabbed material covering every aspect of how to establish a culture impact team at their church. So this is a way to get around IRS oh, guidelines. Yeah. It's like the pastor is not allowed to advocate for a pol- one political candidate or the other from the pulpit, or he's not supposed to. Right. Um, but if you can get your congregations to do it, then it's sort of like getting around the rules. So a couple of years ago, a pastor I interviewed about one of these types of initiatives, he said it's um, a, a God-shaped loophole. He described it as, he said, this threads a separation of church and state loophole. <laughs> and one of the other quotes from Tony Perkins, the, he says, uh, in this from your book, the court has been used to impose a godless set of values on America. Boy, that just sums it up. And they're all about imposing God's set of values, I guess, according to them. Uh, there's a lot of names I hadn't heard of before, uh, such as uh, Rush Dooney and others. But one name I have heard of is Steve Bannon. Tell us about his connection. Yes. Steve Bannon is so interesting. I was at a Values Voters Conference right in advance of the 2016 election. It was terrifying. He said the hot, he he referred to the people getting out the vote, um, the sort of re, what um, George Barna has identified. George Barna, do you, he's like a 
one of the, he's an evangelical pollster, and he wrote a book called The Day Christians Changed, Changed America, and it's basically about the 2016 elect, election. And he identifies a cohort of extremely active, politically engaged, um, hyper-conservative Christians who vote in, lar- like, like 90%, 90% of them vote. And not only do they vote, but they really get out the vote. They're the ones knocking on the doors. They're the ones, you know, making the phone calls. They're just incredibly politically engaged. And so we're sitting there at this Values Voters Conference, and Steve Bannon gets up there, and he's like, the hobbits in the Shire are out there. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just a funny image. Um, and he's like, there are those sage cons out there. They're, that's how George uh, Barna identifies them. He's like, they're the hobbits in the Shire, and they're getting out the vote, and we're going to win. So Bannon has played a really strong role in mm-hmm. what they call the global conservative movement, right. which is, you know, I think it's important to note that the movement is not just an American movement. Um, there's a kind of effort uh, glo- globally, yes. you know, to... Um, create a, a, a network of faith-based ethnostates, essentially. And one of these organizations that hosts um, gatherings every couple of years is called the World Congress of Families. I attended 2019 in Verona, Italy, and members of the movement were there, political leaders also and religious leaders, talking about how they were going to declare war on global liberalism. And this is a movement that Steve Bannon has deep roots to, deep connections. Oh, terrific. And he's real close to the president. And it is a a worldwide movement for sure. And, uh, you know, there's a revival of Christian nationalism in Russia, too. And and one of your chapters is called The Global Holy War Comes of Age. And it seems like uh, it's similar what's going on in Russia to what's going on today, sort of a combination of, of church and state. Or is that, uh, did I get that right? Is, is there this is working together? You absolutely did. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember at that uh, conference that I was at, there were, you know, speaker after speaker stood up and talked about how, you know, we are the future, you know, and there's nothing the secular world can do about that. One of the speakers said, please try to make politi- liberal politicians fear you, you know, so they're really organized, they're really networked, they've got lots of money behind them, and they really want to, you know, they don't believe in pluralism and uh, equality. They really want to bring back a kind of uh, more authoritarian yes. form of power allied with religious conservatism. Oh, terrific, and a plutocracy as as a part of a mix of it. Well, we're getting close to the end, and I always like to try to end on a positive note. <laughs> and in your epilogue, you write, overcoming this kind of reactionary and authoritarian movement isn't just something Americans can do. It is what made Americans what we are. You also say Christian nationalism is the fruit of a society that has not yet lived up to the promise of the American idea and that they are using the tools of democratic political culture to end democracy. I continue, this is you saying, to believe those same resources can be used to defend it. Give me some hope. Sure. I mean, you give me hope, you and your listeners. Um, There are a lot of people who care about our country, who care about our constitutional principles. We're a majority of the country. If we can just get it together (laughs) and act in unity when it matters then, um, then you know, we can defeat this. I'm seeing a lot more political activism than I saw, say, five or six years ago. People who have 
never been particularly politically active are now concerned and now determined not only to get out the vote, but also to bring others to the polls. I have always thought that we should have like a plus one thing where, <laughs> I don't know, I, when, you remember when you were younger and, you know, you go to a concert and there's sort of a plus one, you know, you can bring your plus one. Is We should have that too. Like everybody should find, not just hold themselves accountable to vote, but um, bring uh-huh. a friend or or bring somebody or ask, you know, your neighbor, do you need someone to babysit so you can get to the polls? Or uh, ask an older person, do you need a ride? Or a younger person, do you need a ride? Um, and, you know, I also think we can't begin to meet the challenges we face until we recognize what they are. I think there is actually a growing awareness that we're not really dealing with a culture war. We're dealing with a an actual political movement. I think it's really helpful. And I want to thank you so much for allowing me to appear on your show because I wrote this book in order to really help people understand the details, the specifics of what it is that we're facing. And I think by understanding those specifics, we're in a better position to kind of craft an effective opposition. Boy, yes, we need to. And uh, as an old friend of mine used to say, the relationship between the right and the left is perfect. The right is sadistic. The left is masochistic. We always... <laughs> it's very funny. We always... Dis- that was Abby Hoffman. We always disagree with one another. Fascinating book. I, I couldn't put it down. I really couldn't. And uh, the, so book, the, the book is called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, Catherine Stewart. And uh, who's the publisher on it? It's, uh, it's uh, Berkeley. Uh, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> one of my previous books. It's, um, it's Bloomsbury Publishing. Oh, it's a so, wonderful yeah. publishing house. They've really been terrific. Thank you. And um, if you're interested in following me online, oh, yes. I'm on Twitter at Kath S. Stewart, where there's two S's. And uh, you can le- read a lot of my work um, archived at katherinestewart.me. Well, let's hope for a good uh, November. Let's work for Thank it. Thank you Let's so much. work for it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 